You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. The themes we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about this, this idea of sort of recapturing the wonder. Um, it's a book I wrote, uh, came out last year, and it's, it's really a book about personal spirituality, but part of what I want to talk about today is a lot of the background of that book. Um, because I think, there's, I think there's some things that we need to, to think about as, as church leaders, um, as Christians that are interested in sort of investing in the leadership of their church and their congregations. I imagine you're not at this, this church conference, you know, this ministry conference for no reason. So I'm, I'm thinking of you as leaders. Um, and I wanna help frame the way we think about the culture that we're immersed in. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about culture, a lot about the church's place in culture, and then hopefully as we get towards Q&A and that sort of thing, there'll be room to, to kind of get into some of the more sort of practical how-to, what do we do about this? Um, so hopefully questions will emerge. I really urge you write those down. I'm planning to leave a good, a good chunk of time for questions. Um, but w- w- one of the big themes of... Uh, one of the big themes of recapturing the wonder is this idea of disenchantment. And so you're gonna hear me use that word a lot. So I need to explain what I mean when I say it. Um, if you look at, the, look at what modernity has done to the way we know the world, it's radically transformed it. So if you met somebody 500 years ago and you were talking to them about uh, their understanding of their life, their soul, the, the way the world operates around them, you almost wouldn't be able to communicate with them because the categories in which you think and you understand the world are so dramatically different from the categories that they would have been, would have been thinking in. And this is true of someone 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. If you look at culture, um, culture, the, the way people interacted and related, the way people thought about the world didn't change much in human history for a very, very long time. And then something happened about 500 years ago that changed it pretty dramatically. And what it, what it was was this sort of, this advent of modernism. Um, and modernism is, you know, I'm gonna talk negatively about a lot of it, but it's not all bad, you know. We're glad we have antibiotics. We're glad we have air conditioning. We're glad we have modern democracies. Um, in fact, if you wanna read a great book that's sort of the, in many ways, the counter argument to a lot of what I'll say, there's a book called The Suicide of the West by Jonah Goldberg that's about all the good that modernity has brought us. And Goldberg actually argues in a lot of ways we're losing that in the kind of tribalistic culture that's reemerging right now. That would be another talk. So, um, so uh, one of the big ideas that's at the core of this idea of, of enchantment and disenchantment would be this. 500 years ago, if you met somebody and this is their soul, the way they would think about their soul is that it was vulnerable. It's vulnerable to blessings, it's vulnerable to curses, it's vulnerable to things that they don't see and that they don't understand. It's vulnerable to mystery. And the world itself is full of mystery. Again, 500 years ago, people don't understand what, how disease works. They don't understand the way the weather works. They don't understand uh, life and death and, and sort of the operations of the, the body. All of that's a big mystery. And so what, uh, what, we, what we think about here is this idea of vulnerable souls. So what modernity does is it comes along and it gives us a shield for the world. It takes away the idea of a lot of these sort of spiritual aspects of life. And what a philosopher named Charles Taylor calls this is the buffered soul, the buffered self. And so no longer, there's now this, this boundary between us and the, and the world, this buffer between us and the world. Because why? Because we have explanations for how disease works. We have explanations for how the weather works. You, can't know, you can no longer, most people anyway, um, unless you're a televangelist, you no longer can look at a weather event and say, oh, that was actually a spiritual event. That was just what the weather did. That's just what happened because the sun warmed this part of the earth and this part of the earth cooled and the air clashed and we got a hurricane. And that, you know, no longer do we think of those things as acts of God um, unless you're filing an insurance claim. So 
<clears throat> this is now kind of the default setting for the world, is that there's this protection around you, there's this protection around your soul. The other thing that comes along with this is this, again, this idea of disenchantment, is that all of these different categories of thinking about the world become more and more comprehensible. So everything from <clears throat> understanding the, the stars, understanding the, the universe, understanding how the, the, the universe was made and how it operates, um, down to the, the micro, down to atoms and quarks and, and string theory and all these different things. We have this co comprehensive understanding of the universe that makes us think that there's no mystery anymore. And when I say it makes us think there's no mystery anymore, I mean something deeper than that. There's, there's a gut thing going on where we've comprehended the world in this way. We've been taught that the world works this way. We've heard the stories over and over and over again from everywhere, from movies to politics to our educational systems. All of these things are teaching that this is the way the world is. You know, we learn the scientific method. Uh, we learn all of this stuff. We don't immerse ourselves in stories and, and lessons and political philosophies and all these other things, we, they're not in, they're, there's no transcendence left in any of them. Because whenever you come into you know, some sort of transcendent category, you'll find somebody bumping up against it and saying, actually, there's a rational explanation for this. So, so transcendence gets drained out of the modern world uh, as modernity comes up with explanations for all these things. Um, it, the assumption is, and the gut feeling that most of us walk around is, is that there's an explanation for all of this stuff. I shared this example of a couple of years ago here at this conference, but it's, it's worth sharing again. Um, uh, I think a great example of this is something that I experienced a few years ago when I went to a church service with my parents. Um, they go to a giant mega church, like a mega mega church, a top 50 mega church. Um, and it was a Sunday morning where they were rolling out uh, the new auditorium, and it was like a 9,000-seat auditorium, I believe, um, three stories, you know, triple deck, you know, and, uh, and on the wall next to the front stage, there's this giant cross, and, you know, probably, probably two, three stories tall cross. This guy's singing uh, special music on, you know, Sunday morning. They've done the offering. They're doing special music, and the lights dim, and as he sings, you start to notice the cross on the wall glowing. And it glows a little more and glows a little more and glows a little more as he goes along, you know. And, in, you know, we're musicians here probably, so you, you get the flow of the song, right? Cor you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. Everything's amping up for the bridge. Key chain, key change. By the time the key change hits, this thing is like blinding bright, right? Everything else in the room is dark. This thing's on fire practically. And, you know, final, final verses, final choruses. And everybody bursts to their feet, and they burst into tears, and it's you know, one of those big moments in a church service. So afterwards, I go to lunch with my parents, and uh, I'm talking with my dad, and he's like, how about that cross? And I was like, it's pretty bright, you know? <laughs> and he says, you know, he kind of pauses, and he says, do you think it was real? Right. I laugh too, right? You hear that and you go, well, that's ridiculous. Of course it's, it's the guy in the light booth doing, you know, dimming the cross. Here's what's interesting though. All of us probably had that gut reaction. Do you think it was real? Of course it's not real. That's absurd. That's disenchantment. You didn't have to think that's not real. You didn't have to have a category for going that's not real. Your gut is telling you there's a rational explanation for whatever I saw, right? It's the thing, you know, Charles Taylor talks about this. He says there's this sort of nagging doubt in the back of our heads whenever anything spiritual comes up. And it's, it's not doubt in the sense of like sort of existential despair doubt. It's just this nagging doubt. It's this haunted doubt. It's the haunted doubt that makes you go when you hear somebody was miraculously healed from, from cancer. It's the little voice that goes, ah, there's probably an explanation for this. Maybe the medicine worked. Maybe they didn't have cancer, you know. It's, it, that's the voice, and that's, a, that's been programmed into you by the stories you've heard and the lessons you've been taught for your entire life. That's the background. That's the cultural background that we all live with. It's our default setting. And one of the things that I think we'll find is that in the church, we do ministry in a way that's very disenchanted as well. We do ministry in a way where we don't presume, first and foremost, that we're vulnerable souls that our church is full of vulnerable souls and that there's all this invisible stuff going on that's affecting them and that we're participating in when we do things like worship, preach, serve communion, pray together, 
uh, speak uh, boldly into each other's lives. Um, another way to talk about disenchantment is, is this idea that this is the way that we've come to know the world. And <clears throat> I love having a giant whiteboard here because this is a great example of the way that we tend to think about our brains. We tend to think of our brain as a whiteboard. It's this blank space, and as we go through life, we get facts, and we write the facts down on the whiteboard. And as we go, we get a longer and longer list, and we get a larger and larger whiteboard for how we understand the world. And uh, there's uh, two philosophers, uh, uh, one named uh, Esther Meek and one named Michael Pollyani, who've written a lot about this, and they have a really helpful way of reframing this. Because your brain doesn't work like a whiteboard. If it did, um, imagine this. If, imagine this. This is a, this'll disabuse you of this idea. Imagine somebody goes to Aaron Rodgers, and they say, okay, Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. They go to Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest of all time, and they say, hey, I want you to spend the next 10 years writing down everything you know about football. I want you to write down every play you've ever, you ever run. I want you to write down every, uh, every instinct you've ever had to cultivate. I want you to write it all down. And so he spends you know, 10 years, and he comes up with this giant binder, and he's like, here's everything I know about football. So this person then takes this to a five-year-old kid and says, for the next 10 years of your life, every day, you're going to study this until you've got it memorized. You're going to memorize the whole thing. It's like the Talmud of football, right? And so the kid spends all these years, and he's studying it, and he's memorizing, and he's memorizing. And then one day comes along, his dad's like, you got it? And he's like, I got it. I got everything in here. I'm ready to rock. So he goes to a football practice, and he walks up to the coach at the high school football team, and he's like, hey, listen, this is the next Aaron Rodgers. This kid knows everything Aaron Rodgers knows about football. He's ready to go. He's ready to rock. And the coach is like, really? This kid? He's like, he's scrawny. Because here's the other detail. He never touches a football, right? He just gets all the facts. He's got it on the whiteboard. He's ready to, he's ready to roll. And the dad's like, it doesn't matter. He's got it. He knows it. So you, coach is like, all right, well, I'm interested in seeing what happens. So you take this scrawny 15-year-old kid that's never done anything athletic in his life but knows football, and you put him behind an offensive line, and what happens? He gets destroyed, right? It's a very bad day for this kid. That's the way knowledge works. There's something about knowing that is more than getting facts on the whiteboard. There's something about knowing that's embodied, and it's experiential, and it's, it's three-dimensional. And what, what Esther Meek, Esther Meek has a great book. Um, I'll write her name down. I highly recommend this book. It's called A Little Book of Knowing. It's about 90 pages. She, uh, she's a philosophy professor. Um, she gives it to every incoming freshman in her school. And it's about, it's about uh, how love and knowing interact. And it's about this kind of knowledge, this kind of three-dimensional way of knowing. And what, what Meek says and what Pollyani says is that rather than thinking of knowledge as this whiteboard that we write everything down on, you need to think about a white cane about being a blind person who has a white cane. And you walk into a room and you're tapping your way around the room and you're feeling your way around the room. And with the cane, you start to understand the contours of the space that you're in. And you have a better and better knowledge of the world. And so if we think about disenchantment in this way, this is the way we've come to experience the world as disenchanted. We come into the world without knowledge and we're tapping away around the room, and we're having experiences, and we're having interactions, and we're hearing stories, and we're subtly shaping this map of how we understand the world in this way that is ultimately devoid of transcendence and devoid of the presence of God. Um, the cliche is to say, you know, of the kid that, that studied Aaron Rodgers' stuff, the cliche is to go, well, that's not really knowledge. Um, uh, sorry, the, the cliche is to say that knowledge isn't enough, but the better way to think about it is, is that that's not knowing. Knowing is embodied. Knowing is personal. Knowing is experiential. Um, and so I think this is, this is key for us understanding disenchantment and disbelief. It's key for us personally. It's key for us thinking about our role as pastors and church leaders and worship leaders. It's key for understanding what's happening in the minds and hearts of our congregations. Because we've all had common experiences that have gotten us to this place where when somebody says, hey, do you think it was real? We go, ha, no way was that real, right? One of the, um, one of the ways Charles Taylor describes the, that experience of coming into the world is he calls it disciplines of disenchantment. 
And it's this idea that you've, uh, you've encountered, you know, whenever you, you encounter these conversations about transcendent experience or, or beauty or, or, or miracles or God or spirits or whatever it may be, people accuse you of magical thinking. They accuse you of superstition. They, there's like an eye-rolling cynicism. And, and it's interesting because at the same time that this phenomenon is going on, you also have a world where there's kind of an Oprah-esque spirituality. There's a, a new rise in, in the uh, excitement around transcendental meditation. Uh, you've got yoga, you've got soul cycle, you've got these kind of spiritual experiences that are going on in, the pop, in pop culture. But I would argue that they're still disenchanted because if you start to take any one of those things too seriously, people think you're weird. You know, if you take yoga, if you go to yoga classes, nobody thinks too much about, oh, you went to yoga, great. If you're like, man, I'm going to yoga and it changes my life. I meditate for two hours a day. I just feel like I'm in contact with the divine. Like, you're all probably ready to roll your eyes just at the phrase, I'm in contact with the divine. Like, come on. Like, that's just ridiculous. So spirituality is okay so long as it doesn't take anything too seriously and so long as it doesn't challenge our expectations about the, the world being disenchanted. Um, meanwhile, we have a Christian vision of the world uh, given to us through the scriptures that says something dramatically different about the way the world is and the way the world operates. Right down to our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says uh, that, that uh, eternity is in men's hearts. There's uh, a searching and a, and a longing and there's a lifelong desire for, for fulfillment uh, that's been implanted in us by God in our creation. Um, Acts 17 is a great example of, of the way uh, Paul confronts a similar but, but different kind of uh, searching and longing that's going on in the world. He goes to Mars Hill and he walks among the temples and he walks among the philosophers and the poets and he hears them speaking. And, <clears throat> you know, he essentially says, the gods that you're looking for, you know, he sees this, this, this uh, altar for an unnamed god. And he says to everybody, look, the God you're looking for has a name, and his name is Jesus. Um, I think that uh, in a disenchanted experience, there's, there's, a, there's a whole other set of expectations going on. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, when Paul's walking around Mars Hill in, in the book of Acts, he's looking around and he's going, there's a longing in your culture, and you're longing for God, and you're longing for transcendence, and that God, is, his name is Jesus, Right? There's something similar going on in our culture, but we're no longer looking for it in transcendence. The gods of our culture, the people we worship in our culture, the things we worship in our culture are no longer transcendent things. They're things like money, and power, glamor, sexuality. Um, there's a reason that Kim Kardashian is the most famous person in the world. She's got everything we think we want. She's got everything we think we need. She's got power, she's got status, She's beautiful, she's, uh, she's a sex symbol, she's got money, she's got influence. And what's so fascinating about her is it's really hard to understand exactly why she has everything that she has. I mean, there's the obvious and crass reasons that she showed up in, in pop culture, but that doesn't explain why she stayed there. Uh, there's a great interview with her in The Guardian um, where somebody, where uh, the reporter at The Guardian, this was a few years ago, he spent several days with her trying to, trying to understand why does the Kardashian empire exist and why do people care so much about, about Kim? And this is my favorite moment in it is he, he asks her, can you tell me why, why are you famous? Like, what's your talent? And he said, she looked at him for a long time, you know, kind of confused and she goes, well, you know, uh, you can teach a bear to balance on a ball and juggle and he's got talent, but he's not famous. Do you know what I mean? That's a great quote, guys. <laughs> and, and so again, why, if we really get down to why is Kim famous, it comes, down, it comes down to her status, not to who she is and what she's accomplished. And the reason that status matters so much is because we don't think there's anything better. We don't think there's anything better than having that kind of status in our world. And so if you start to look around the world this way, if you start to say, okay, the world doesn't have an expectation of transcendence, then where are they looking for happiness and satisfaction? They're looking on Food Network. Like the closest thing to a religious experience might be an epic meal. 
They're looking to HGTV. We have this longing for home, this longing for return from exile to the garden, and that's a transcendent thing. I don't have the categories for that, but you know what? I do have this longing for home. I'd love to have a perfect home. I'd love to have a better home. I'd love to have a, again, status. The opportunity for status. That's what we long for. That's what stirs the heart because we can't imagine things more beautiful. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting is another place to look at to see how this stuff is at work is to look at the world of advertising. Advertising is never selling you what they say they're selling you. Uh, my favorite example for this was a truck ad from a few years ago where um, this, you know, it's, it's this beautifully shot, I mean, it's a gorgeous uh, commercial because they shot everything like in the golden hour of the day where the sun is just barely starting to set and everything's golden and beautiful. And you've got four people and they pile into a truck and they've, they've got a trailer with dirt bikes and it's, you know, shots of them driving out to the desert and then riding their dirt bikes and then driving back. And, and the dialogue over it is like, you know, the gravelly voice. Uh, this is the voice I always do for my father-in-law because he sounds just like this. It's like, a man, a man and a truck and some company. You know, a few bruises, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and not once do they talk about the truck. They never mention the truck. What are they mentioning? The experience. The truck is a gateway into this experience that's the closest thing to transcendence you can get, which is going out to the desert and having a great time with your friends. That's the good life that they're selling you. They're not selling you the truck. You buy the truck because you want the good life. That's why the ad works. It's what Coca-Cola is doing all the time. Coca-Cola is rarely telling you, we're the best fizzy, you know, sugary drink that you can get. They're not making an argument about their product being better than anybody else's. What they're making an argument about is when you drink Coke, you experience the good life. And if we're honest, if we look at the world that way, this is kind of a, a secularized version of neo-paganism. We've just masked the gods a little differently, but we're still worshiping power, sex, and money. So to bring this all together, Knowing is less like a whiteboard and more like a white cane. It's more like tapping around the room and saying, what kind of world is this? We've lived in this world where we've heard these stories of disenchantment. Uh, and we've heard uh, just another concept that I think is helpful um, uh, is the idea of the imminent frame. This is also from Charles Taylor. So here's the world we live in. And whenever our thoughts start to move towards transcendence, like, man, that was a really beautiful experience. Why was that so great? I'm really in love with this person. What is this longing that I feel for them, right? You run up against this frame. Well, that longing you feel is your genetic disposition to continue life and, and extend your DNA to the next generation. So you feel all this longing for this person because you know, it's a biological thing right? Hey, that was a really transcendent experience at that meal. I, I can't tell you how great that was. Well, what was happening was the neurons in your brain were firing like crazy because you were stimulating them with all of, you know, with your taste buds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the imminent frame. It's this ceiling that we bump our heads up against in our culture anytime we, we try to think of something that's transcendent. And that's the shape of the world that we live in. Um, so thinking about it, uh, thinking about the, the work that we have then as, as pastors and church leaders, we have to understand that people come into our congregations shaped and formed by exactly this world. This is how they experience the world. This is how they think of the world. Um, and the reality is that there is such thing as in, there are other ways of knowing the world. In fact, we, again, look back in history look back at this reality where people walked around and had a sense of their vulnerable self, had a sense of transcendence, had a sense of spiritual reality and mystery that stretched beyond what they could see and touch and taste, there's another way of knowing the world. And there's a Christian way of knowing the world, of forming people into how they think and how they know, that is profoundly different than this disenchanted and buffered way of knowing. There's a 3D map for, for uh, a 3D model or a Christian geography of the world. And what's challenging for us is that we don't often account for it. It's not the way that we approach ministry. Um, the, 
nonetheless, even if we don't necessarily, uh, even if we aren't operating with this understanding, our work as pastors and church leaders is still forming people in, in some way. And if we're not careful, we're forming them in disenchanted ways of experiencing their, their own Christianity. There's a disenchanted way to live out your faith. Um, I think one of the reasons that we get uh, that kind of an experience in our churches is that we don't emphasize practices in our understanding. We don't pay attention to the way they're shaping our sense of what the Christian life is. Why? Because we think knowing is a whiteboard. So people come into our churches and go, let's get the facts straight. Let's get the catechism right. Let's make sure that you, you've got the right doctrine. You've got the right understanding. Let's make sure that the songs say the right things. Let's make sure that the preacher says the right things and that we check off all the boxes. But again, that's saying if I hand somebody the right playbook and they memorize it, they'll make themselves into an NFL quarterback. That's not accounting for the Christian life. The Christian life is a whole three-dimensional experience. There's a whole Christian geography of knowing, of knowing the world, that's going to form people into the image of Jesus so that they're transformed, so that they have a sense of transcendence, so that they can break out of this imminent frame. So I want to talk about three ways then that disenchantment shapes the ministry of the church. Um, the first is a disenchanted approach to scripture. The second is a disenchanted approach to practice. And then the third is our share of neo-paganism. Um, starting with disenchantment in scripture. Um, disenchantment is this movement from mystery to knowability. And it leads to the triumph of reason in shaping the way that we understand the world. Um, faith is now about what we know, and the Bible becomes a textbook like any other. We treat the Bible as a textbook that we have to get the right answers to. We have to know how to diagram the sentences. We have to know how to trace things out. Just as modernism sought an explanation for everything, Christianity post-modernity uh, sought the same thing. And rather than treating the Bible as this living, breathing thing, right? The all, think about all the ways that this, the word testifies for itself as being light, as being power, as being uh, the word of God itself. We treat it as a, as a formal textbook, as something that we can break down and comprehend totally. And I think that's the key. We, you know, we want a, uh, we want pastors, we want leaders in our churches who are literally Bible answer men um, because they've mastered the text and they've broken it down. If you believe what the Bible says about itself, you should have a, a sincere confidence that this is a book you're never going to master because it's bigger than you, it's more powerful than you, and it has a whole lot to say that's beyond what you can comprehend. I think what, what happens is the Bible gets subject to the same rigors of research that we, we do with everything else in this world. And so we dissect it. We break it into component pieces. And then we end up with something where we can go, okay, I've broken it down. I absolutely understand it. And that brings us to the worst of fundamentalism and literal, literalism. Um, it reminds me of a great moment on the show 30 Rock when Kenneth Parcell, who was sort of this country bumpkin that they used to make fun of country bumpkins. Um, he says, you know, my favorite subject in school was science. That's when we study the Old Testament. <laughs> now, here's the thing. We can pick on conservatives and fundamentalists for being guilty of this, but we can also pick on liberals for the exact same sins. Because liberalism is doing the exact same thing to the scriptures that fundamentalism is. It's saying, here's this book, and it was written 2,000 plus years ago, you know, for the, for the whole canon. It was written all these years ago. What we're going to do is we're going to subject it to the scientific method. We're going to break it down. We're going to compare it uh, historically. We're going to distrust it. We're going to subject it to the rigors of modernism. And we're going to tell you what's true and what's not true because we've figured things out and we know better than the text. It's the same idea. It's mastery. We're going to master the text because we've got the methods. We've got the reason. We've got the power to do it. Literalism goes to the Bible looking for evidence of dinosaurs. Liberalism goes looking for the confirmation of its own social and political biases. Both treat the text as something that can be mastered and managed, and both drain the text of any inherent mystery. In other words, Ken Ham and Rachel Held Evans are actually under the same influence of modernity. And I'm not knocking on you if you're a young earth creationist. I, I will not tread into that debate. Please don't go there with your questions. 
But I'm trying to say this. If our way of reading and interpreting scripture drains it of mystery, of paradox, or of wonder, then we are more a product of modernity than we are of Christian tradition. And that's true of most Christians in a secular age, including non-evangelicals. The second challenge for us in terms of being a disenchanted church is a disenchanted approach to practice. Our default setting, being disenchanted, uh, inclines us to doubt whether or not God's going to show up and do the work in his church. And so we look within eminence for ways to try to make sure that something happens when the church gathers. So again, if our default setting is here, we're buffered from the, the spiritual, we're buffered from the transcendent, we don't expect things to happen, then when we start thinking about ministry, ministry becomes about what can I accomplish because I'm not certain there's anything out here to participate in. And the, the Christian vision of the world, you know, Paul's vision of the world is that uh, in him we live, move, and have our being. Uh, so, so ministry should be, defined by, um, should be defined by the concept of participation. We're participating in the work of the Spirit. We're participating in the work of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that worship is perpetually being led before God's throne by Jesus. And so when we gather as a church, we're stepping into a worship gathering that's been taking place for 2,000 years. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as, okay, 9 o'clock Sunday morning, I got to switch it on and I got to make people feel something. It's on me. I got to figure this out. You know, I think about my own experience, you know, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives his bona fides as to why he's the apostle that he's the apostle of. And I read that one time and it made me think about my own experiences in the church and how my experiences in the church had sort of prepped me for who I am as a Christian and, and what, I, uh, what I think about the Christian life. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I, was, uh, I was baptized in Second Baptist of Houston, one of the largest churches in North America, not the one with the glowing cross. That was later in my parents' life. Um, I was actually baptized by Ed Young Jr., if you guys know who that is. Um, that is a whole story on itself. Um, I remember I was 10 years old and I was in the church, and it was Christmas. And this was at a, another very large Baptist church in Houston. And for Christmas every year, they did this Christ, Christmas uh, musical celebrations. And it was called Christmas Through the Ages. And somehow or other, during a celebration of Christmas in the doors of a church, I found myself wearing silk bell bottoms and like a leisure suit looking jacket and, uh, and singing uh, uh, Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music with a dozen other kids my age. What that has to do with Christmas, what that has to do with Jesus, I have no clue, but this was, this was part of my experience. Um, I grew up in a, in a contemporary youth group. Um, I, I played Chubby Bunny. Um, I played if, uh, the game, uh, Honey, If You Love Me, You'll Smile, which these days would be considered sexual harassment. Um, we played a game called Redgrass. I, I love telling this story. It really isn't helpful to the conversation, but it's just one of those things that I look back on it and I go, I can't believe this happened. And actually, it is helpful to the conversation. I'll, say, I'll tell you why in a minute. So we played this game called Redgrass at camp. And what they would do is they would take 30-gallon trash cans and they'd fill them with an over-concentrated mix of Kool-Aid. And you'd divide up the, the groups, you'd divide up the kids into two teams and they'd put these giant straws in the, in the Kool-Aid Kool buckets. And whoever emptied theirs first wins, right? And again, it's over-concentrated. It's 100 degrees outside. If you sit there and you just try to drink it, you're, you're not going to get very far very fast. If you sit there and try to like, suck it out and spit it, it's a very slow process. So what you figure out fairly early on in the game is, you know, if I drink a whole bunch of this stuff and then run over to the edge of the, the trees and throw up, then I can get back in and do this. And so this is the game. This is why it's called Redgrass. It's not just a clever name. These were my, experience, these were my formative experiences in the church. Um, I, remember going to, I remember going to conferences. I remember going to this youth conference one year, and this guy gave a talk. And I don't remember the substance of the talk a whole lot, but at one point during the talk, he showed the clip from Dead Poets Society where Robin Williams is, is you know, being escorted out of the room, and 
one of the students stands up on the chair and he yells, oh, captain, my captain, you know, and it's kind of this dramatic moment. And then eventually uh, another one stands up and says, and eventually everybody in the room stands up and says, oh, captain, my captain. And he shows the clip and he's, it has something to do with standing up for Jesus. And, you know, by the end of the, by the end of the talk, there's this sort of pregnant moment where he's like, you know, who's going to stand, you know, et cetera. And somebody in the crowd stands up and says, oh, captain, my captain, right? And then eventually everybody in the room stands up and says, oh, captain, my captain. And at the time, it was incredibly like, wow, that was moving. That was meaningful. That was, that was sort of a beautiful testimony of faith. Well, then we go back a year later and there's a guy and he's giving a talk and it's, it's about standing up for Jesus and who's going to be bold. And he shows the clip from Glory where uh, uh, right before the final charge, I don't know if you've seen Glory, amazing movie, Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, uh, right before they lead the kind of final charge, somebody says, uh, Broderick says to the troops, he says, you know, this is our flag, you know, somebody has to carry the flag forward, Uh, who's going to do it? And somebody says, I'll do it. And somebody, uh, he says, okay, if he falls, if our flag falls, who's going to stand and and carry it forward? And this guy comes, he says, I will, you know, and then eventually they all say, I will. So what happens at the end of the talk, you know? The, he literally takes the Christian flag, right? Our flag has fallen. Who will stand? You know, I will, I will, I, you know. And, and I remember the third year it happened, right? Third year, same thing, same conference, same thing. And, uh, and this time they'd gone back to Dead Poets Society. And my friend Lachlan, um, <laughs> my friend Lachlan leans over to me and goes, I'm going to ruin this for everybody. And I was like... I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, he's going to make us say, oh, captain, my captain. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to say it early. <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, as he's doing the buildup to, you know, all this stuff, he just yells out, oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> but what's the experience here? The experience in each of these cases, you know, from chubby bunny to red grass, to all these things, what are they driven by? They're driven by adrenaline. They're driven by hype. They're driven by this thing of like, we got to work people up. We got to make people feel something. We've got to get people excited and make them feel like being a part of this is exciting. Because you know what? We're not sure if we don't do this, we're not sure what's going to happen because we're not sure there's anything happening out here that's going to move people and move them towards faith. Um, I think my experiences aren't abnormal. I think that's what it's like growing up in the church in North America. So let's go back to the history stuff. 500 years ago, the Reformation begins. Worship gets translated into the vernacular, but preserves most of the structures of the liturgy, of the medieval liturgy. Believe it or not, um, because it's not often talked about this way, when Luther uh, starts the Reformation, he doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He likes the liturgy. He likes the way communion is served. He likes the transcendent kind of experience of the mass. He just wants people to comprehend what's going on and be able to better participate in it. So worship gets translated into the vernacular. Um, over time, the, the free church movement begins where essentially what the free church movement is trying to do is they're saying, okay, rather than having one prayer book, one way of approaching what we do when we gather in, in the church, and Joe, you can correct me on this afterwards if I'm getting any of this wrong. But it, rather than having one approach to this thing, we're going to, uh, we're going to empower pastors and empower, uh, empower churches to do what makes sense for their context, to pray specifically for their churches, to preach the scriptures according to what pastors are discerning and feeling is necessary at the local level. And so the free church kind of becomes this, this large movement. And then from the free church comes revivalism, which uh, begins to strip away more and more sort of of the liturgy, more and more of the transcendence. And this is happening as modernism is going along. And what revivalism is doing is revivalism is saying, we got to move people to a decision. So we got to structure our services in such a way that there's an emotional momentum, there's, there's a weight to them that moves them towards decision-making, decisionism. And we're starting to get this vision of the self that says, you know, if we don't make them feel something, we're not sure what's going to happen. So we got we to gotta sing. We got we to gotta get hyped up. Hopefully we'll get to a place where people are like running to the, down the aisles to save, get saved from, from hell. 
Revivalism uh, tempers quite a bit and translates into con the contemporary, uh, the, the worship of the, of the 20th century. That transitions into the contemporary worship movement. And this isn't just happening within sort of the evangelical tradition. This is also happening um, in various, various parts of the Catholic Church and various parts of Anglicanism. These movements are happening where uh, the, the, need for, the need for sort of revivalism, the need for emotion, the need for emotional manipulation becomes more and more significant across the board. And you end up in this place where church services look like what, what Bart Simpson described as lights, smoke, and Tybo. So like all of these shifts, like all of the shifts of modernism, it's not all bad. The fact is that we needed a reformation. Catholic practice had become egregious. And the fact that worship was not being done in, in, uh, in the vernacular was absurd. It was absurd that you had a priestly class and a lay class where the lay people didn't understand what was going on. The gospel was buried under a giant pile of garbage, but we lost something too. In the movement, we've lost something. We've undervalued practice because the movement away from the liturgy, the movement away from the liturgy has moved people away from a sense of disciplined practice when the church gathers and forms them. And what I would argue is that that disciplined practice is one of the key ways and one of the key tools that the church has for helping the congregation and helping ourselves tap our way around the world and go, what does the kingdom of God look like? Well, the kingdom of God looks like these sacraments that we've been given. The kingdom of God looks like prayers of adoration, confession, assurance. The kingdom of God looks like a movement of gathering and sending. The kingdom of God looks like some of these very specific things that were crafted by pastors in the early history of the church for the purpose of forming people into the image of Jesus. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as empty tradition that, you know, that needed to be cast aside. And in many ways, it had become empty tradition. But we've got to ask ourselves, what are the practices we're giving people instead? And I think this is especially egregious with young people because we're giving them red grass. We're not giving them formative experiences of the presence of God. Christianity primarily became understood as a set of beliefs and not as a way of life. Third, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to speed up. Third, we have a share of, of uh, neo-paganism. Neo um, the pagan idols of our culture have just as much appeal to Christians as they do to non-Christians. And when I say paganism, I'm talking about, I'm talking about this. Um, paganism was essentially the, the worship of the, the, worship of, of the imminent world um, and the worship of idols that represented certain ideals. So in paganism, you're, you're worshiping things that promise you fertility. You're worshiping things that promise you uh, uh, you're, you're worshiping, worshiping things that promise you flourishing. You're worshiping, you know, a fertile earth and, your, and protection from evil and, and, and all these things in, in the form of idols. We have all of that still today, but it you, typically takes its form in brands and celebrities and the power of brands and the power of celebrities. So celebrities, platforms, Christian celebrities, the real problem lies in the fact that we've idealized expectations about who those people are and we're shocked when we discover that they're flawed and human. Um, I'm going to skip my little aside about Tim Tebow. If somebody wants to ask about that, we can talk about that later. All right, so power. So evangelicals are longing for a return to the glory days. We're in this very interesting political time where you have this, you have this movement where Christian values are not necessarily being represented by the party that promises to protect, protect Christian values. So we have to ask ourselves, what are, we, what are we doing for the sake of power? What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of power? That's idol worship. That's a sacrifice to an idol that says, I'm willing to give this up for the sake of this. We can leave more of that for Q&A. I don't want to get in more trouble. So <clears throat> to summarize, because we breed the same culture as everybody else, we find ourselves profoundly affected and shaped by a secular, disenchanted culture. The three things I've focused on today, and there's plenty of others we could talk about, again, we can get to some of this in Q&A, is that there's, we have a disenchanted approach to scripture that makes it something to master rather than a glimpse into a mystery. We have a disenchanted approach to ministry and to practice that leads to a sense of urgency on our part of making people feel something or experience something because we're not sure what happens if we don't manipulate them. 
And third, we have a share in neo-paganism, and we're looking for meaning, hope, and satisfaction within imminence. And I, again, I think, not to get too far aside with this, but I think Christian celebrities are a great example of this, that we look to them as these sort of idealized selves. And it's why it hurts so bad when somebody we've ideal, idolized falls. Rather than going, rather than recognizing the fact that we're human and we're sinful and we should expect depravity from Christians around us, we are devastated and churches are devastated when their celebrity pastors fall. So, so yeah, there's a lot we could say. There's a lot I could say about practice. There's a lot I could say about other, other stuff. Um, I want to leave it there and th- start throwing it out for questions for you guys. So please raise your hands. Speak loudly. We're re- recording, so be sure and speak up so that hopefully it gets on the recording. Yeah. Oh man, that's a great question. So the question is, when do we know confirmation bias is happening and when do we not? Um, I think, I think the, the response to confirmation bias should always lead us to community um, because community in, in community we have uh, people around us who hopefully are different from us and see the world differently from us. You know, the, the ideal picture of the church in uh, well, I shouldn't say the ideal. The picture of the church that we're given in the New Testament is a church that's diverse. And there's poor people and rich people. There's ex-temple prostitutes. There's, um, uh, there's former Pharisees. They're all kind of gathering together. And ideally, the church is somewhat representative of that today. So when we're, when we're wrestling with something and we're going, am I just, you know, am I just confirming my biases with the th- way I think about this cultural thing or this theological thing or whatever, hopefully we're in a community where we can ask questions about that from people who we know see things differently from us. Um, so I think community is the key on that. More questions? Man, I answered all the questions about disenchantment. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And it is a tension. Um, it's because the, the answer is not give them a dry, you know, rational. The, the answer is we have to walk this line between, uh, uh, between, between presentation and manipulation. And I think the, the goal should be, the goal should always be to lead worship with excellence, to, to, to strive towards beauty, and to... Uh, uh, to strive towards beauty and to stir affections. But we have to ask what's stirring the affections. That's the key. Are we stirring the affections with the, you know, the power of the subwoofer and the flashing lights and the smoke? Um, are we stirring the affections? I mean, I remember being at a, <laughs> being at a worship conference. This is 20 years ago. And uh, I'm getting old. And uh, this, this worship leader gave this talk and he was talking about letting the spirit move and letting the spirit breathe and, and, you know, essentially saying what our responsibility is to put Jesus in front of people and then let them respond. You know, that's our goal. And the, he finished talking and it transitioned into a time of, of worship that he led. And he, so he literally goes from saying that and he straps on a guitar and he goes, all right, I'm not telling you how to feel or what to do, but clap, 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 jump, 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 you know, and it's just like immediately like just totally cognitively dissonant. Um, so I think, I think what, we're, what we're responsible to do is to, is to present people with the beauty of the gospel and to present it in, as artfully as we know how um, in such a way that they're able to participate in it. So participation tempers artfulness. Um, uh, Isaac Watts had a lot to say about that in his, his hymnal. Um, but we present it in such a way that, that it's comprehensible and that they can participate in it. And then, in, in a sense, 
we hold back from telling people how to respond. We hold back from, I think, I think we need to hold back from some of the cheerleading. I really do. I think, I think a lot of times there's sort of a cheerleader mentality with worship leaders that, that does say jump, 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 clap, 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 and pushes people into, um, pushes people into a, a, an emotional state and a frenzy that is out of context with whatever the content in front of them is. At the same time, worship leaders, you are the first emotional interpreter of a text. And so if you're singing a song of lament, you should be able to communicate lament in the way that you present that. If you're singing a song of celebration, you should be able to present that with joy. Um, in fact, your responsibility is not to be first and foremost authentic. It's first and foremost to be a, a careful presenter of whatever it is you're trying to communicate. You're, when you're on the platform, you're a communicator. You're not supposed to be your authentic self, right? And this is something that a lot of, a lot of worship leaders wrestle with because we get up there some Sundays and we just don't feel it. If you're supposed to be your authentic self, then you get up there and you go, guys, I'm just not feeling it this morning. I'm sorry. We're just going to have to suffer through this. That's not loving your church. That's not serving your church well. So, so we have to be stewards of the emotions of the content that we're putting in front of them. And we have to recognize that we're leaders. And as leaders, we have a responsibility to lead in a way that, that tempers our, our honesty and tempers our emotions and serves the emotions of the congregation pretty well as well. It's kind of all over the place, but yeah. 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 Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, the question was, what, what advice do you have for worship leaders and pastors that feel disenchanted? Um, I, think, I think personal spiritual disciplines are crucial to this, and I think a very holistic approach to spiritual disciplines. Um, you know, I served as a pastor in a church and oversaw a group of worship leaders, and one of the things I would find um, was, was really essential uh, was silence and solitude. Um, I, think, I think adopting some kind of practice of silence and solitude, get away for, you know, if you're a pastor, you have some liberties that lots of people don't have. You also have some spiritual pressures that lots of people don't have. So feel the freedom to say, I'm going to get away for a day a month. I'm going to go find a library to sit in where it's quiet and just sit with a journal, sit with a book, sit before God. I'm going to go to a, you know, there are some churches that do this. There are monasteries that allow for this. Um, uh, but make a practice of getting, getting alone with God. Um, and, and I think, you know, Matthew chapter 6 is really helpful in this, when Jesus teaches on prayer. Uh, and he says, be careful about practicing your righteousness in front of others. In ministry, a lot of times, we can't help but do a certain amount of our practice of righteousness in front of others. If there's not the secret practice that he talks about, of getting away, locking yourself in a closet, of going off to lonely places the way Jesus would do himself, if, if that's not a solid foundation, then yeah, disenchantment and burnout is going to happen hardcore. So I, that, I think solitude, silence, secrecy, um, those, that's what comes to mind. How are we doing on time? We got like five more minutes if there's maybe one more question or, or two. Oh, oh, eight. Yeah. That's a great question. So, um, historically, um, I think one of the things we have to break out of, you know, I talked a lot about, uh, well, I talked a bit about this sort of disenchanted approach to Scripture, where, you know, most of what we know how to do with the Bible is study it. Um, because the, the meditation practices on the scriptures that the Bible itself, you know, invites us to are not something that we, that we learn. Like, we don't teach our churches this. We, I, shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that so definitively, but meditating on scripture is not a common practice that's taught. We teach people how to study. We teach people how to break it down. Um, we teach people how to read well. And all that stuff matters. That's all. I'm not saying get rid of that. Um, but there are meditative practices that have been part of church tradition that engage the heart and the emotions in totally different ways. Um, often that means engaging with less of the Bible at once, um, taking just a couple of verses and saying, I'm going to sit for 10 minutes with two verses, you know, 
I'm just, I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna keep praying them and asking God to bring, you know, emotions and thoughts to mind related to these things. Um, Psalm singing was, was such a part of the church for so long um, because I think that the church understood that the emotional experience of life is mirrored in the, the Psalms. And so I think knowing our Psalms well so we know where to go when, with wherever we are emotionally is, is super important. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, I've, I've talked about the Psalms a, a lot in other contexts and one of the pushbacks, one of the bits of pushback I get from people is just sort of the, well, there's 150 Psalms, that's a lot to know. And, you know, in cultures with, in, in Jewish culture in particular, in the synagogue culture where Jesus would have grown up, the, the rabbi would have sang the first line of the Psalm and by the time you were 12, 13 years old, it was expected you'd be able to sing the rest of it. Um, so I think our capacity to, to memorize scripture is much greater than we think it is. So I think something like scripture memory is a key tool to meditation. I think praying and singing the Psalms. Um, and then I, I won't get into the details of it, um, but you can Google it, Ignatian meditation. Uh, well, just to say a little bit about it. Um, the Ignatian meditation was is this practice where you, you go to the Gospels or you go to uh, some of the narrative passages in, in the Old Testament and you essentially say, okay, I want to engage this with my imagination. I'm going to imagine myself as a character. So you take a story, like a healing story of Jesus, for instance, and you say, what, what, did, what was the experience of the leper? Imagine myself in the shoes of the leper. Um, imagine myself in the shoes of the disciples looking on. Imagine myself in the shoes of the skeptics looking on. Imagine myself in the place of Jesus because I'm supposed to be a wounded healer like Jesus, you know, encountering people who are, who are, who are sick and, and wounded. How do I put myself in this story and allow it to come to life in new ways? Um, there's a lot of great resources online for kind of guided Ignatian meditation to kind of teach you how to, how to engage the practice. So probably time for one more. Yeah. Hmm. That's a harder question. Um, well, so I'll, one of my favorite stories that I think connects to this is, um, uh, is about Annie Dillard, the writer. Um, Annie Dillard is a brilliant writer. I think she's won a Pulitzer uh, for a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Um, uh, she was on a book tour for a book called Holy the Firm which was about uh, witnessing a plane wreck. And um, I believe that's the name of the book. She, I, maybe one of her other books. But anyway, she witnessed this plane wreck and um, her stuff is dark. It's very grim. She's very aware of the tragic side of life and of like the violence of nature and all of this. But she's a believer as well. And so her faith stuff kind of weaves through the, the books as well. And she was at a, she was at a book tour um, and she was in Chicago at a, uh, at a reading and somebody got up and kind of with a little bit of hostility kind of said, how can you look at a world that's this violent and this dark and still be a person of faith, still believe in, in God? And her answer was just, because I've met him, you know? Um, I think that in a way becomes like, it's the only apologetic ultimately that we have. Um, and you know, there's a reason John says they'll know us by our love. Um, I think we, our, our greatest witness to the world would be our transformed, transforming presence. Um, when we are remade in the image of God, that's the best apologetic that we have. Um, and so I think to the question, you know, when people come to us and say, well, how come you're just saying this because you're a Christian or whatever? Like, you're kind of stuck in the internal argument. You're stuck going, I think this because I'm a Christian, you know, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm, you know, in, 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 
in ways that I think are, are really powerful when it comes to some of these cultural issues, you know, we're really, when we're pushed on issues of questions of sexuality and things like that, we have to kind of say, look, I'm, I'm constrained by the scriptures here. I might do things differently, but I'm not God. And, uh, and so I'm constrained by the scriptures and I'm constrained by my trust in Jesus. Uh, you know, and there's, there's great arguments to make and say, well, look, Jesus trusted the scriptures and, and so I trust him. And so therefore, and there's various ways to do that. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, faith is you know, living in this world where there's, the, there's all this sort of mystery and there's all these questions. And when push comes to shove, we're going to come to a place where we're going, yeah, I'm standing up against this void where I don't pretend to understand the world, but I know Jesus. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm clinging to in this, in this reality. Um, uh, you're clinging to, the world around us is clinging to this imminent frame and saying there's an explanation for everything. And what Taylor uh, says uh, is sort of the best apologetic in a world like this is to go, does it really fit, you know? Does it really fit that the reason a meal with friends feels transcendent is because of your taste buds? Does it really fit that you, the feelings of love that you have for your spouse and your children are really just about sort of genes doing their work to propagate the species? Is that the best explanation? Um, and I think that's the best way to, to try and sort of punch holes in some of these, some of these arguments. So cool. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. <laughs> Appreciate it.